is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm here with two co-hosts. Uh, I will let them introduce themselves. Uh, Leah, are you here? I'm here. Hi, Matt. Uh, my name is Leah Witt, and I'm a new assistant clinical professor in geriatrics and pulmonary medicine at UCSF. I'm really excited to bring this episode to you. And you've been on shows. You've been on shows before. I think you you were involved in the COPD show and then the the Jerry Siders episode, which was a very popular yes. one. <laughs> That's right. Our spinoff, the Jerry Siders, and and Shreya Trevetti. Want to introduce yourself? Hey, hey. yep. Uh, I am a, now a general internal medicine fellow at NYU, and I have been super jazzed up for this episode for like the last week. It's been keeping me going, so I'm super happy to be here. And we also have- I don't think I said super enough times. <laughs> you could say it as many times as you want. And Nora, Nora Toronto is a chief medical student at the University of Chicago, who is our producer for this episode. I'm not sure. Nora, are you still with us on the call? I am. I am. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Thank you so much for all of the hard work and uh, guests. you helping us with booking guests and all this stuff for this episode. So thank you. Of course. It's a pleasure. Stuart and Paul could not join us. We're recording at a different time than usual. But Shreya and Leah are going to be our fearless leaders for this one. Shreya and I might be less familiar voices to you, and that's because this week, the Curbsiders women have infiltrated the podcast to bring you a topic that we're really passionate about, gender disparity among physicians. Today, we'll be talking to an expert in these issues, Dr. Vinny Aurora from the University of Chicago. And don't fret, our male curbsider colleagues haven't disappeared. Um, this is an issue that needs to be addressed by all of us. So we're, we're going to start out by dissecting our own show and let you in on some of the conversations we've been having about gender uh, parity on our podcast. And then we'll delve into a case of a cashlock intern making her way in her early career. And we hope this first uh, episode will be one of an ongoing series that will address workforce gender issues. But we'll need your feedback. Our voices are not fully representative of the many challenges faced by not only women physicians, but also other underrepresented groups. So it's critical that we lift up all of those voices and we hear from you about your perspectives. Please contribute to our community through this conversation on social media about your experiences uh, throughout the curbsider audience. So let's get started. So I'm going to introduce our guest today. Dr. Vinny Aurora. She is an academic hospitalist and professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. There, she also serves as assistant dean for scholarship and discovery and as director of GME Clinical Learning Environment, an exceptional example of a woman in medical leadership. Her interests include improving the learning environment for medical trainees and the quality, safety, and experience of care delivered to hospitalized adults. She's also a social media superstar and can be found tweeting at Future Docs. So first of all, Vinny, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Um, we This is our first Women in Medicine podcast. And over the weekend, the Curbsiders tweeted out kind of an eight-part tweet about our own 
endeavor to make our guest selection diverse and to help people, um, who, listeners think through a lot of these women in medicine issues. And it was really, really well received. People were really excited about it. Yeah, I saw that. I retweeted as well. So it was Thank great you. to yeah, see you guys on Twitter and getting some pickup. And I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Um, so we can start with our get to know you questions. We always ask ask our guests to give give us a one liner to describe yourself. Great. I, I, I noticed that the example used um, your age. And so I'll just say I'm an over 40 <laughs> middle aged faculty member at the University of Chicago. And I am a wife and mom of one. Um, and I have an addiction to Star Wars and science fiction, which is a disappointment to my husband. Um, and also generally <laughs> bad movies as well. So I, I will borrow from the example there. Too bad. Uh, too bad. Paul's not here to recommend his, you know, movie choice of the week, which is, you know, questionable. <laughs> but he likes. He um, only watches the good stuff, Shreya. He's he's a bit of a snob about okay. it. Sorry, Paul. Oh, he's not going <laughs> to like this. I watched, then. Uh, I watched the movie Gone recently, which had eleven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which was of uh, <laughs> great dismay to my husband. But I got into it, so you liked it. Um, I did. I, I kind of like sci-fi and horror. It's you know, I, a good scare is always a good thing. So. <laughs> I'm very much the opposite, but all right. So the, our next rapid fire question for you um, is, oh, wait, sorry. Quick question. Is it okay if we call you Vinny for the rest of this podcast? Is that we established that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Sorry. So, so Vinny, can you tell us um, what your quote unquote women in medicine moment of awakening was, if there was one? Um, absolutely. I should actually say that um, it's interesting because I, would have not considered myself a uh, champion of women in medicine. So I'm sort of an accidental champion, if you will. Um, and my moment of awakening um, really came um, after my maternity leave. And I was, you know, going up for promotion here and um, had looked into some of the um, gender equity around salaries and was kind of shocked with how far I had fallen behind, given that I actually didn't pay a mommy tax. You know, I had I had my daughter relatively late. Um, so so it was interesting to me, like, why why did I fall so far behind? And, you know, if it was all these papers about, well, moms work less hours and have more domestic work. And while that's all problematic in other ways, I, I didn't have that problem. So I was kind of curious, like, you know, what 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 led to that? And then I um, was asked to review a paper by Rita Redberg, who's a very prominent a woman editor at uh, cardiologist um, at JAMA Internal Medicine. She asked me to review a paper on gender uh, disparities in gender pay by um, Anupam Jenna and group uh, at mm -hmm. Harvard, which used uh, really very large publicly available data from public universities to look at this question. And they did a, something where they tried to adjust for all the factors that could explain the pay gap, like um, your uh, Medicare uh, fees, you know, like how many, which are a proxy for how many patients you see are part time, whether what your faculty rank was, how many grants you had, um, you know, how many papers you published, really tried to get at sort of, um, you know, metrics in academia that might correlate with better pay that not only led to research productivity, but clinical productivity, they were still left with a $20,000 pay gap at the end of the day. And in some specialties, it was quite large. 
And um, and in some institutions, though, there was no pay gap. And so it wasn't it wasn't across the board. There were some places that were doing very well. So I wrote a rather um, blunt um, review of this paper and was asked to write the editorial for it when it came out, uh, which then somehow landed me in the um, on the front page of the Electronic New York Times. <laughs> nice. The co-authors of the paper uh, that I commented on were all male. And so, um, so they were really looking for a, a female voice to amplify about this issue. And I think part of my awakening was that when I was reading the paper, it was like, well, this is me. You know, I'm this faculty member that that has all the grants and papers and, you know, have, you know, have, have achieved what I wanted to achieve, but I'm still falling behind. Why is that? And so, um, and so in the, in the paper, I posited a few reasons, including the idea of um, gender um, inequity based on the fact that, that, um, you know, there's this, um, you know, well, there's always this issue about like, oh, do women, um, you know, not negotiate well, et cetera. That's, that's sort of an one issue. There's also this issue of just unconscious and implicit bias, you know, which is that perhaps you think you can get away with paying women less. Or uh, what's more interesting is that uh, more of a in an economical term, a statistical discrimination, which is based on a somebody's outward appearance, which is, okay, you're a young woman, uh, when you're negotiating, you're like, well, this person's probably going to go on and have kids. And so money may not be important to them. And so um, and so those are the kind of things I wrote about, um, which I think got a lot of attention. So that was really my moment of awakening in this space. I think this podcast is going to be my moment of awakening to uh, <laughs> no, actually, actually, uh, mine would be mine would be uh, on t when I joined Twitter and, and started doing the show. I started people started to write us our first 13 shows. We had men as guests and our, my first two co-hosts were were both men. And that was not for lack of trying. It just that that's the way that it turned out. And then listeners pointed it out to us. And I have. So this is probably since like the first six months that we started the show, I have really been tr conscious about trying to get uh, women, both women and men as guests for the show. And it's been, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's still been majority men. And that's sometimes when I would go to societies early on, we were just emailing societies and saying, Hey, would you like, do you have a speaker for this topic? And a lot of the times they would recommend a man and then a lot of times when I would reach out to people, um, if they were women, they may or may, for whatever reason would say would would either not respond or just uh, not not end up doing the show. So I think we've we're we're becoming much more successful. And with this Twitter thing now, I mean, we have like hundreds of of promising leads. But I wanted to ask you: so if you had to go back to the beginning of your career and 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 take it from the beginning, are there things you might have done differently now that you know what you do about? about some of the struggles you went through that you were just kind of pointing out? Um, yeah, I thought about this uh, question a little bit. And I think that um, I, the advice I wouldn't have, would have given my younger self, which sounds odd for people who know me, would be to be don't afraid to be bold. And I actually think that the reason that might be surprising is I think some people think I am fairly bold and speak what's on my mind. Um, but I think that, um, you know, 
there's always this, uh, you know, question of caution when it comes to your personal and professional life, and how is that going to merge together? And you know, I was a single chief resident, um, so I didn't get married until my mid thirties, and so I was always kind of like, you know, cautious, like, well, you know, do I do I take this big job or do I make a move or do I wait for my personal life to settle out? And when I think about those things, I, I don't think that those are the types of decisions I see young men be really thinking about. And so my advice to younger women now and, and people who certainly remind me of myself is don't afraid to be a risk taker and be bold because in that early trajectory of your career, you can do it. It's a little bit later when you're cemented and grounded um, and have a, um, you know, a, a thriving career and family to be as bold as you want to be because you have other um, sort of, uh, you know, family responsibilities and things like that to, to tend to as well as, um, you know, it's a delicate dance of like, where are you going to live? How are you going to balance your, your life with your, uh, with a spouse who is also um, possibly likely has another career? So, so I think those early days, I look back and I think, was I as bold as I could have been? And did I take the biggest risks that I could have taken? Um, and so that would be my my one piece of advice for folks. I was wondering those questions as I was walking here in this delicate balance. So I genuinely appreciate hearing that advice. All right, let's switch gears to picks of the week. Um, so my pick of the week, I'm, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the Joel Toff episode 88 podcast. It might have got cut out because that episode w- went way too long. But, um, but it's a women in medicine chat that happens on Sundays at 9 o'clock. It might actually be changed to 8 o'clock. But um, it's been a wonderful community of women from all walks of life uh, in medicine and all levels of training. An incredibly um, supportive community and I think something I didn't know I really needed um, until I experienced it. And so I definitely encourage you guys. It's both for men and women to to check it out on Sundays. Thanks, Shreya. Um, my pick of the week, I my pick of always is Beyonce and the Carter. JC and Beyonce <laughs> just, just came out with a new album um, together. So I've been listening a lot to their album, Everything is Love. And my favorite song in the album is Boss. But that is not my pick of the week because my um, favorite Beyonce song of all time is Flawless, which samples Chimamanda DJ's TED Talk, We Should All Be Feminists. If you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it. Some of my favorite lines are, we say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should be aim to be successful, but not too successful. Um, so listen to the song and then watch the whole TED Talk and be blown away and inspired. My pick of the week is actually um, an interesting conference that I'm going to be going to later this evening, um, which is called the Women of Impact. And the Women of Impact is a 501c3 organization that is really dedicated to um, to promoting women leaders in healthcare in all sectors. And um, I was really fortunate to join this group. Um, five years ago at its inception. And so it's going to be great to be able to celebrate that anniversary as well as welcome some of the new members and sort of think about um, legacy and sort of what do we want to give back and how do we want to inspire the next generation of women leaders. 
My my pick of the week is a TV show, the TV show that I, I think has made me laugh the hardest in probably the past couple years. It is by Tina Fey, who who did 30 Rock, and uh, she, she produces this show. I imagine she might have something to do with writing it because it seems to be the similar, like very silly, ridiculous sense of humor. So the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is the is Ellie Kemper who was she played Erin on The Office and on this show she's a woman who was recently released from a bunker where she was held prisoner with a couple other women for 15 years and now she's like released into New York City and she had never been there before she was from like Indiana and it's just a hilarious show she lives in a sideways tugboat <laughs> uh, with her <laughs> With her roommate, who is obsessed with wearing capes, and it's it's a really fun show. Uh, some of the funniest lines, uh, I don't know how they think to write some of this stuff, but I highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. Awesome. All right, so let's get started with our case. Do you want to start, Treya? Yeah. So so this week we're flipping the script. We're going to focus on our house staff at Cashlack Memorial, Dr. Beth Blackwell. Leah, take us away. All right. So Dr. Beth Blackwell, she just graduated with honors from Cashlack's super prestigious medical school, and it's her first month as an intern at Cashlack Memorial. She's exhausted from cardiology night float service, and she thought the most challenging part of her training would be the workload, but she's starting to notice an additional burden of gender-related issues, which she didn't notice much in medical school. In spite of introducing herself as Dr. Blackwell, she finds that patients often do not assume that she is their physician but instead a member of the team in training or a nurse. In fact, she just ran her first code, and afterward the nurse asked her male third-year medical student if she was the code leader. All right. So this uh, unfortunately hits a little bit too close to home, um, but but let's, let's start general. Um, Vinny, if you can set the stage for us, speak to um, kind of how these gender disparities vary across different segments um, in training. Dr. Blackwell is uh, definitely experiencing a common problem that women physicians do face, which is, um, for whatever reason, patients and others in the healthcare workforce uh, do not recognize women as doctors. And this literature is actually borne out in several studies, including one prominent study where they audited grand rounds um, videotapes and showed that when women grand round speakers are introduced, and clearly that's not an example of, oh, maybe this is a uh, medical student. I mean, people know that the faculty member was invited for the grand rounds, uh, but compared to male grand round speakers, female grand round speakers are often introduced by their first name, whereas male grand round speakers are often introduced with the doctor title. And so I think um, there's two things at work here, which is one is sort of the, you know, implicit bias that, you know, when you see a, a when you think of a doctor, you might not think of a woman. And so that's where, why, you know, you might think of a nurse. And so that's what's happening to um, to Dr. Blackwell here. Uh, the second goes even further, though. You know, the Grand Rounds example really highlights that even if you are invited and, you know, you don't think of a Grand Rounds speaker, you know, at a medical Grand Rounds, you think that that person's a doctor. But even still, there's sort of these um, um, implicit judgments that are made. And I actually have seen this over and over again, after the paper, you know, you notice things and I'm like, wow, this is something that's very real. And so, um, so I think what she's struggling with is, um, 
is this um, this tension of how do you advocate for yourself? And I, I definitely was this resident on cardiology when I went down to the ER. I was a third year resident with my intern um, who is uh, who's actually now a pulmonary critical care faculty at uh, Penn, uh, but he was an intern at the time. And my the ED um, resident. Um, no, the ED attending, the ED attending who was male asked me, what does your cardiology fellow think of the EKG? And pointing at my intern. I, of course, was like, I don't care what he thinks. <laughs> 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 uh, but I'll talk to him about it after, given that it was uh, first uh, cardiology rotation in the first week of August of his intern year. I respectfully corrected him and said, I will be communicating with my cardiology fellow um, who's now actually a cardiologist um, and uh, was a, a female <laughs> over the phone. Um, so this does happen. And sometimes you can make light of it. And that's what I did. I made light of the situation. Um, other times you, you have to really advocate for yourself and correct people. And there is a line there because I think one of the things you struggle with is um, as a female, you are aware that there are sort of um, gender lines around how people be think you should behave and sort of, you know, women should be polite and sort of, um, you know, more uh, acquiescent and, you know, not as not as um, confident. And so the challenge can be when you sometimes have to cross those lines um, to advocate for yourself you can pay what's called a likability penalty where, you know, for women, especially as they grow into leaders and have to take on leadership positions and advocate for themselves, they do pay that likability penalty that men do not pay. And there's a lot of studies that show that. So, so I think the question is, how do you, um, how do you kind of finesse the line? And perhaps um, some of the things that can always be um, the, the, uh, you know, sort of like, how do you really establish a culture where this is not happening? And so this isn't going to be a one person against everybody. It's really going to be, how do you bring this issue to light with the chief residents, for example, at Cashlack, um, the program directors, and say, how can we do this? How can we make this better? How can we post our pictures? Uh, make sure that people know that we're physicians and want to be addressed as doctor. And so those are the, some system ways that we can elevate the conversation. So um, Dr. Blackwell is not in this alone, so to speak. Thank you. Um, we you talked a little bit in your in your moment of women in medicine awakening that the awakening happened for you uh, a little bit later in your career, not in medical school, not in residency. F for me, it was not in medical school. It was when I became a resident, and um, this a situ had a situation just like Doctor Blackwell, where I ran a code, and at the end of the code, someone asked me who. Was that who was running the code? Was it the male resident that was standing next to me? And I was like, you know, I spoke the entire time. I don't know how it could have been clearer. I wonder if you, how you see you're both a mentor to medical students and residents kind of throughout their career. And from your own personal experience, how do you see gender issues playing out differently in those different stages of training? Absolutely. Um, there's actually a really interesting piece that is published in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week that describes um, a shout-out program in an internal medicine residency that, uh, you know, the, they, they were collecting shout-outs, so to speak, and uh, about publications and scholarship and, uh, you know, just generally good things. And, you know, it ended up being that 70% of the shout-outs or 80% were like male shout-outs for various things. 
even though women were publishing, women were not telling anybody what they had done. And, um, and that got a lot of attention on Twitter. And, and I was really um, very, uh, you know, I read it. And actually, I was like, wow, this is really stunning, because this is happening so early in training. But this carries with you as a faculty, which is if you don't start advertising and start advocating for yourself, who's going to know that you won an award or got a grant as a faculty, you know, and a lot of times I see women, they rely on the system to just figure it out. You know, Oh, why didn't my section chief congratulate me about this thing? Well, they didn't know, but probably uh, another colleague who, because of just differences in personality, a man might've mentioned that, Oh, no, I got an email. Thank you for, you know, thank you for supporting me for this letter. I got this opportunity. So, one of the things that I've advised um, people I mentor is to be uh, vocal about, you know, when th certain things happen in your life that people need to know about. And if it feels awkward to advertise your own accomplishments, because that does kind of cross line with self-promotion, what you can do is create a group of peers. And this can happen early um, with your colleagues in residency so that, um, you know, for example, I have a very close friend here. And so if I something happened to me, I'd be like, my friend who's my office suite mate, um, Jeannie Farnan, I'd be like, Jeannie, can, you know, I, I got this thing and she'd be like, amazing. So I have, she would then send out the email to my section mm -hmm. chief. She's not even in my section. Um, my second chief <laughs> would then send out the email to other people. And so the key is there's ways to really get the word out. So people know that um, you are doing well and you are um, succeeding because I think the general sense is that unless people hear from you, like, you know, nothing's happening in your life. And so mm -hmm. sometimes you need to advocate for yourself um, in your, especially early in your career to let people know, I got an early win, you know, I'm doing fine. You know, I got an abstract accepted and you can't rely on the usual channels of information to carry to your leaders. Um, and so that goes as well in, in, as when you're younger as well in training. What we've done is looked at residency evaluation data and shown this gender bias, this implicit bias starts very early. Um, so it doesn't, it's not a faculty thing. It's its starting even earlier in objective evaluations of residency performance. And the work was done in emergency medicine, but thousands of observations of real-time data. Women actually started out ahead of men in terms of their achievement at time zero when they joined their residency. But by the time they graduated, they were three to six months lagging behind in milestones achievement and the only explanation was gender and in the follow-up study in the qualitative study that we published what we showed was that women were getting disparate feedback where they were told at one time to be more assertive but then when they were more assertive they paid the penalty for being more assertive and so in the code situation you mentioned Leah somebody might say to you oh well you gotta you know get your voice up and be more assertive mm -hmm. I've been told that and um, and then the next time you do that, and then the next evaluation said, you know, you know, uh, Leah is is too commanding in the room. You know, she's got to be a little bit more, you know, uh, respectful of her team members. And um, and so that's the disparate feedback that women are receiving when they're trying to live up to their role of a team leader, whereas men are often um, given coaching advice where it's like, you know, great job, but here's how you could have done better, look forward to next time. And so literally these are the quotes that we're seeing women and men are getting. And what's interesting is they're getting them from both women and men. So it's not that, you know, being a woman faculty guards against this bias, but you sort of 
uh, have had to pay this penalty and you pay it forward, so to speak. So I think one of the things we really have to do for uh, to help advise women um, trainees, especially, is to be cognizant of the fact that these biases are, are at play and that they need to really ask for feedback uh, much earlier, make sure that they are in line. But this isn't just going to be a trainee problem. Like This is a faculty development problem where we need to really let our um, evaluators and mentors know that in the workplace, this is a problem and we need to we need to get, uh, you know, really get to the root of this problem. And so that's why studies like this are important because um, because while the gender pay issue gets a lot of attention, if this thing is starting so early in residency, it's affecting performance. You can imagine that somebody could argue, well, this, you know, the woman performed lower than the man. And so I'm going to reward mm -hmm. that later. And so, you know, it's a vicious cycle. So you've got to start at the root of the problem. And so I certainly think you're, you know, yes, we have to fix the gender pay issue. But if we don't fix the training evaluation issue, then we're always going to be left behind because we're going to um, always see this bias play out. That's, uh, that, that fascinates me, the double standards. And it's, it's so clearly played out in so many situations. And I think, you know, the more so to, to really speak to the fact that it's not just men, are, it's also women. And I think Esther Cho wrote in the end of that article, she herself realized that she also did it. And I was, I was really proud that, um, that, you know, she was speaking out about it. And hopefully more women can also see if they are uh, kind of doing the same thing. We were honored that she wrote the editorial for our work. So that was exciting. Oh, that yes, that's what I read then. Okay. And this is <laughs> this is a big reason that I, I thought this was an important show to do because uh, the uh, many of us in the curbsiders are either trainees or, or training, training trainees and medical students. And we need to know how that we can fairly and effectively mentor people and write, write letters of recommendation and write evaluations. And I wanted to just swing back. You mentioned uh, kind of, talking about your own accomplishments there's a book called the art of the brag which i've i've um i promoted on the show before it's about 200 pages i can't remember the author's name we'll put it in the show notes but she basically just talks about like how you can unapologetically and in a way in an acceptable way talk about your own accomplishments and how you should actually practice what you're going to say when people ask you what you do don't say oh i'm just a I'm just an internist. You would say, I'm an internist who specializes in podcasting and uh, this podcast has been blah, blah, blah. And you would kind of go on to talk about your accomplishments. So I think that book is really useful for men or women uh, in medicine. That's great advice. Some of the best advice I've ever gotten about writing a bio sketch was to write it so that it makes you uncomfortable with how kind of braggy it is and then re show it to somebody else and for most women i um i can't speak for men but for most women uh it's fine it's totally fine it's like still it's very it's still uncomfortable a little bit tepid. To write it's like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right right that reminds me, uh, Leah, one thing that I tell fellows, uh, we don't make residents or students do this, but once you're a fellow, you're often like drafting your own letter of recommendation. So you have to be comfortable with selling yourself. So as a faculty, you know, if I need a letter for somebody for an opportunity, you know, I'm not I'm not asking them for a real letter. I'm sort of saying I'm going to shell out a letter for you to take a look at and then add. And so you need to, and that faculty is just as busy as you are. So you need to help them highlight, well, what is it that is so great about you for this experience? And so that's a useful skill to have. 
All right, so let's let's move on to uh, Dr. Blackwell. So it turns out a few years later, she graduates from residency at Cashlack. She served a year as a chief resident and now is an assistant professor and a clinical educator at Cashlack Memorial um, with clinical responsibility in the primary care clinic, yay, primary care, and she's precepting residents. So it's been a few years into her career, and she's about to meet with a division chief to discuss her contract. Turns out, in addition to her clinical duties, she's also been volunteering on several division committees, and she doesn't really have protected time for weekly lunchtime conferences that she's, uh, you know, very frequently giving to the residents, which all take several hours to prepare. She's pretty exhausted and starting to worry about if she's getting burnt out. So we'd like to start by asking you about the leaky pipeline issue and what accounts for... uh, the fact that there's really serious attrition um, from medical school to progression to senior positions for women in medicine. Absolutely. Um, and so um, as somebody who just made professor this year, I'm congratulations. Very Thank you of the leaky pipeline. And, uh, <laughs> and it is, it is a journey. Um, and so I identify with Dr. Blackwell in the sense that she's got a lot on her plate Um, at a very junior point in her career. And what I don't see is that she has mentorship um, and somebody really shepherding her career growth. And at least in academia, the key about growing and moving from assistant to associate to professor and leadership is both mentorship and sponsorship. And somebody really kind of being a career guide in your professional growth and development And they always say that um, in academia, you know, you need to have a focus or a specialty. So even as a generalist, you know, I'm I'm working general internal medicine, you know, I still needed to have a, you know, when you get promoted, you have to get promoted on the basis of impact in a specific area. And so, and certainly clinical impact is one area, but you still often in academia need to be like, I was an excellent teacher in this, or I was an excellent researcher in this. And so for me, that's been sort of the intersection between medical education and quality improvement. Um, but in, in Dr. Blackwell's case, I see that I don't, I don't see that for her. So I am actually very worried about her. She seems like somebody who will leave because she doesn't have that mentorship or coaching to get her to the next phase, um, because what she should be doing is, you know, sort of developing her niche and her focus on her career, working with trainees, finding that joy in her work to keep her successful. We see that she's doing a lot of service, volunteering on department committees, but that could be very disparate. Like what kind of committees? Is that aligned with where she wants to be going? Or is this more um, sort of you know, paying the piper for like, you know, doing uh, volunteer work that might not lead to any professional growth and development. So I think one challenge with the leaky pipeline is are women getting the coaching that they need to move forward? Um, And that's number one. Number two is that unfortunately, for whatever, you know, reason, um, another issue is that the promotion and tenure timelines in academia are very rigid, and they're not flexible. And they happen to overlap with women's childbearing years. And nobody seems to want to talk about this, but I feel like, you know what, we need to just get this elephant in the room out there, which is that, you know, there's no good time to have children. And if women want to have children, you know, do you have them during residency? Do you have them during fellowship? And obviously some people are not married at that time and don't have partners. Um, And then, you know, we see a lot of women starting families in their early faculty days And that can be a real recipe for burnout unless they are plugged in with a mentor and a coach who understands that they're going to need to focus their time 
uh, very strategically in projects that are going to go well, that are going to advance their career. And so, um, so I think that's a challenge that women face. Um, you know, I've seen a woman and a man, both with, you know, researched K awards, uh, the woman had three kids, the man did not, you know, the man had a wife, uh, you know, who had kids, but is, is, and either is in medicine or not. The man's going to be ready for promotion faster because he's going to get his stuff out there. He's going to be able to travel. I mean, there's just the physical demands of taking time off, you know, is going to sort of change your timeline a little bit on your accomplishments. And I am, I am really sad that people don't talk about this more often. This is something that is um, you know, not encouraged. People don't encourage talking about it because they're almost afraid to talk about it. When in, when in fact, this is actually one of the reasons why women leave the academic workforce is that they don't see role models who can make it happen, uh, both professionally and personally, or they don't think that they have the support from their leaders to make it happen. So even something as small as a 5 p.m. meeting or a 7 a.m. meeting, which actually ends up being sometimes, you know, there's an urgent departmental meeting and it has to be at that time. Or, you know, if you're not there, you know, people question, you know, are you very engaged? Those things tend to be no big deal. You know, just come in a little bit early. After you have kids, it's sort of this delicate dance orchestra to be like, how am I going to patch together the coverage? And um, as a physician, you're already balancing your clinical duties, and you're probably already overtaxing the um, the childcare options that you have, and so um, so urgent childcare for a 5 p.m. meeting comes becomes an issue. Um, and I've seen that handled in many different ways, but I I highlight that because I think this is about a culture, which is can you make it work for women who have kids? If you can make this work for women who have kids, you have a positive culture for everybody. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not just a woman issue, right? I mean, I'm, I'm traveling to go to DC later this today at night, my husband's going to be on the on the docket for the next two days with our daughter. And so it's got to work out for him. And so in today's dual career, a marriage workforce, um, as well as when we think about work-life balance, we shouldn't think it's just a female problem, right? It's really about everybody who supports the family. And so one thing we need to be cautious about is when does work start? When does work end? And, you know, I've been seeing people actually get better. You know, I've seen emails at, on the weekend that now say, don't feel the need to respond to me. You know, this is FYI only. And so those are nice because even if you're checking your phone while you're at your daughter's swim practice, you're not like, oh my God, I have to like, you know, now go into my Word document and draft an email that's informed. So I'm starting to see the culture change around work-life balance, and that will improve life for not only women, and, but also men, um, and that will restore our joy in work, because we know that's a huge problem that I know you guys have talked about before. Mm-hmm. Vinny, so you mentioned a little bit about coaching, sponsorship, mentorship. Could you define those for us and parse them out a little bit, and then talk a little bit about what 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 women need for career advancement and how um, kind of different people can fill those different roles? Absolutely. So, um, so we authored a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine with um, Sanjay Saint and Vineet Chopra from Michigan, um, who've been authoring quite a bit on mentoring. Um, and so in response to the question, a mentor is really somebody who's responsible for your overall career and growth development along your career. Um, so that's a longitudinal relationship. 
Um, a coach is somebody who's really helping you with one aspect of your career. So think um, maybe they're helping you on a presentation and how to give a national presentation, or perhaps you have a question about uh, how to negotiate your first contract and you go meet with somebody to be like, I, I heard you're really effective at this, you know? And so those would be somebody who, who you would call a coach, more of a one-time or two-time relationship, not a long-term relationship. And then there's a sponsor. A sponsor is more a visible leader in your organization who's basically putting you up for opportunities. And so not everybody can be a sponsor. Sponsors particularly have national visibility. They sort of are in the room where it happens, where you know uh, agendas are set for national meetings and um, they'll be like, hey, I have a great person for this. And they're gonna then sponsor you for that. And so um, a funny story about this paper is actually that, um, I was, uh, my chairman here had identified me as somebody who had the metrics to join the American Society of Clinical Investigation, which is a national honor society for physician researchers that inducts physician researchers every year. And so it has 3,000 scientists in it. And so they were like, you know, Vinny, we think that you could, you could make this society. And I was like, okay, I'm not sure, but let me think about it. And I took a look at the um, application and they said the first um, thing you need is a sponsor and you need a sponsor outside of this organization. So I looked at the list and I identified, you know, and not being a basic science researcher, which this organization is, is more tipped towards, I looked for people in my field in hospital medicine and in health uh, outcomes research who I had known who were very uh, positive um, people in my life. And I identified Sanjay Sain at the University of Michigan as a member. And so I actually reached out to him on behalf of my institution and said, um, you know, uh, Sanjay, I know that this is something you do. Would you be comfortable being a strong primary sponsor for me for this opportunity? And he wrote back that he would love to. And so one exciting thing was that he not only sponsored me, but he sponsored another female researcher, Reshma Jagsi. And we were able to have dinner with Sanjay and we were both you know, um, emerging female leaders. And so that was just lovely. And he really just did a wonderful job and um, and later disclosed to me that he has nominated many women and it was like just a pleasure to work with him. And so then he actually said, hey, I have another opportunity for you. And so, um, you know, one of the things about sponsorship is, you know, it's like, what do you do? How do you reach out? Um, do you reach out to the right person? And so clearly I hit the jackpot with uh, with my sponsor, because then he sponsored, he said to his uh, mentee, you know, hey, we should work with Vinny on this paper um, and particularly address some of the gender issues. And so that's how that paper came to be. And, um, and the reason that I take an interest in sponsorship is actually it's Reshma's study um, that I was a subject in that looked at NIHK awardees and their sponsorship opportunities, not their publication record or things like that, but were, were women compared to men were they being sponsored for um, national um, study sections, editorial boards, you know, grand round speaking? And it turned out there was a big sponsorship gap. They, you know, all of these K awardees have mentors, right? You need a mentor to get a career development award from the NIH. But the gap was that they didn't have sponsorship. And so, um, so that's really what um, led me to think a little bit more about the need to really delineate who your sponsors are and be very active cultivating sponsors in your career so that you can actually elevate and get to the next level, if you will. 
Excellent. I actually, I just went to a mentorship workshop just recently by Adina Kellett, who's a very big med ed person, but she actually had us um, create what we call the quote unquote mentorship map and made us distinguish um, who we wrote down from mentors versus sponsors versus your safe space uh, people versus your emotional uh, kind of uh, network. And it was very interesting to write out because people could identify mentors very quickly, but not sponsors as very quickly. So I highly encourage you guys, if you're walking or whatnot, take a pause and and kind of do that for yourself. And it might be a good reflection moment. I I had not, I have to admit, I had not heard of this concept of uh, sponsorship versus mentor. Like I had never heard of the distinction between them and hadn't really thought about about that. I, I would have to do that exercise myself because I don't know that I could have those names offhand. I was really all in on the book Lean In in residency, and I think it has a lot of great points um, sitting at the table. Um, but it does put a lot of the burden on the woman, uh, on the woman who's kind of trying to pre- to advance her career. Um, and there's this notion that, you know, you need to lean in, you need to try harder. And learning about sponsorship really opened my eyes because it's making connections with people who have power and influence that can help connect you with opportunities you wouldn't even know about. Um, we, read this article um, to prepare for the podcast and the Harvard Business Review from 2011 that notes that a lot of that oftentimes women feel like sponsorship uh, may feel like getting ahead because of who you know, and maybe that's unfair. Uh, women often believe that it'll be their hard work alone that will advance them. And you've already mentioned that women often don't speak up about their own achievements and wait to be recognized. How do you combat that or counsel your mentees um, about those kind of feelings that women can have about sponsorship? Well, certainly, I think that really good mentors also can help sponsor, right? So it's not that, um, you know, you may not have early in your career, your mentor may be your sponsor, right? So it might be that your, your mentor is like, oh, I nominated you for this opportunity or this training award. And so, um, so as you get um, older in your career, those folks tend to differentiate. Uh, particularly because the sponsorship that you need to take it to the next level may come from a leader that's not in your space. You know, maybe it's a health system leader and you're thinking about a career change, or um, maybe it's uh, somebody who's on a national council um, that's going to sponsor you for the opening on that national council. Sponsors may not be at your organization, but I think early in your career, oftentimes a mentor, sponsor, and coach, you, you can play the same role in somebody's life, Although I will say that it is nice to kind of diversify the, um, the approach. Again, it goes back to advocating yourself. It's really awkward. I, I know it's awkward. It gets better. And so um, here's a great example. Like, you know, just take this example of Facebook, right? I see on Facebook, you know, I kind of used Facebook more personally and Twitter more professionally. And I've done a lot in social media and I've kind of had that line for myself. Um, but obviously there's, you know, times where the two cross over, um, But I've noticed on Facebook, um, especially um, my younger male colleagues have no qualms about posting their latest job opportunity or whether they're at the conference or, you know, some great award that, you know, happened to them. Um, Honestly, they don't even think about it. I've actually asked my my male friends about this. And, you know, it's just part of their like part of their life. They're just advertising part of their life. 
Um, and then I see women and, you know, I like think about myself and I'm like, you know, when I got my first R01, I was so excited. My, um, my, uh, office mates threw me a party, you know, they decorated the office, but I never posted that on Facebook. Cause I would be like, no, that's a work thing. You know, like, why would I share that? And so I think that's one of the other challenges is sort of, um, I do think that women find it a little bit awkward to, to kind of cross over that line and sort of. Uh, be sharing professional achievements on a personal space. And I, I can't say that's a gender thing, but in my experience, I have seen more men do it than women. Having said that, then I've talked to other women uh, friends of mine and they're like, "How you know, Vinny, how come you didn't post this on Facebook that this happened? And I was like, I don't know. Why would anyone be interested? And what you realize is that's really your family. It's your, your community and your family. And so I started to try it out. And, you know, it sounds odd at first, but like, you know, I, I posted that um, my, you know, I posted that I was inducted into ASCII with a picture of Sanjay Saint and, you know, all of the other folks that got inducted, including Reshma. And, uh, you know, people were so supportive, you know, it was like, wow, like people are interested in knowing that you're succeeding. Um, and I posted when I got professor. Um, and again, people were like, you know, this is amazing. Thank you for supporting this. And I realized that it's almost like you have to rethink about yourself as a role model and highlight to people because they wouldn't know, like who would know that I made professor if I didn't post it, right? It, you know, maybe they would have seen it in the Department of Medicine minutes, but doubtful, you know? Um, <laughs> and so, right, you know, so it's sort of like, you know, what you realize is that social currency is very important and highlighting your achievements is just as important to your friends and family. And I see this with my husband, you know, my husband is the first to tell his parents or our family is like, oh, you know, I'll be, you know, I've got a press mention in the New York Times. And I was like, you know, I, I don't even like tell anybody that happens, you know? And so, um, and you know, why is that? Well, I sort of feel like people will read it and they'll find out. Uh, but again, it's really, again, being more, not thinking of it as uh, like a, like a self-promotional item, but it's like, you know, I, I think you care about me and this is important to me. So I'm sharing this with you uh, because I think this is something that you would want to know about. And so, um, and so when you start thinking about it that way, it's very easy then to share things and just let people know, like, I'm honored to receive this, or this was a great thing that happened. and I want to share it with you. Um, it's changed the way that I approach some of my social posting, but I highlight that to say that um, again, if you do not advocate for yourself, nobody's going to know. And there's always the friends. And I always have friends who are able to highlight accomplishments. And I certainly do the same. Like if my friends get an accomplishment, I will blast that out to everybody. But at the end of the day, um, really about networking, it is putting your best foot forward. And I have learned most about this for my friends in business. And so a really good friend of mine, you know, had her own business, sold it. She's, you know, very done very well. And she's a networker and she's able to very concisely highlight her expertise and her um, her leadership ability in a, a short conversation with somebody because she has to be in the business of sales and of selling this uh, marketing and selling herself as a brand because that she is the company. I mean, she's the CEO. So I think that um, in medicine, we often don't value these types of um, career building and networking skills that are valued in the business community and honestly in every other industry. And that's something we need to be much more upfront about because I think that being able to really pitch yourself and your worth in a short amount of time is a very valuable skill because it not only highlights that you have focus, 
but it also highlights that you understand your goals and your impact. And so, um, so when we think about those women going up the leaky pipeline, a lot of it is, you know, in the few in the opportunity that they had to talk with their chairman in the elevator or their chairwoman, you know, did they say the right thing? You know, when people say, how are you? You know, um, did they say, great, you know, I just got a new grant, everything's going well. Or did they just be like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. You know, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, Let's that's a good example. Let's focus the conversation on you instead. <laughs> right. That's a great example. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, very successful people in the business community look at their opportunities to be like, how can I leverage my network? And that is just not a mindset that we have cultivated in medicine, um, in academia, which is particularly important given when you go up for promotion, they solicit 15 letters from national experts to be like, do you know this person and are you familiar with their work? And so obviously having that network is going to help carry. I wanted to, this is a, a related topic. So we, we've sort of talked about promotion, promoting yourself. And part of what we wanted to accomplish with this episode is talking about how can we promote, how can we do advocate for our trainees? So we wanted some concrete examples. So f- for me, for me, when I'm writing letters for medical students and residents, what, what are some concrete steps I can take to make sure that I'm not, I'm not undercutting anybody? That is a great question. Um, and particularly when you write letters, I think it's important to think about the person as um, uh, their competence as well as their skill for the specific position they're going for. And one of the things that can be um, sort of a pitfall is thinking about sort of general flowery prose. And, you know, they've done studies to show that, you know, women and men have different words in their letters. You know, women, men are confident leaders, you know, women tend to be more um, team players, go with the flow, you know, um, nice, you know. So you want to be careful about anything that's too subjective. And I would say call out examples, you know, just be like, I was very impressed with this trainee who took a leadership position with this patient or who was able to present at this conference. So really make it more about the behaviors and less about the um, general perceptions of somebody because that will get rid of the implicit bias because you're actually talking about experiences that you've witnessed. You've witnessed this, you know, this trainee have commanding presence at a leadership conference or, you know, give a give an authentic and well-informed presentation. And so if it's more about the work and less about the person, you're going to be able to really advocate for that person well. So, um, you know, just some summary take home points in this area of really mentoring women and uh, being a woman and being a mentor and coach are I would not assume that um, anybody uh, is your mentor. You know, I would definitely make sure you have a defined mentor and a relationship with that person and you know that they have your back. Um, The other thing I would think about is, you know, don't sink all your eggs in one basket. And so, um, you know, everybody has a different agenda. And so it might be that your mentor is like, I'm really focused on your research career. And, you, you know, you may be like, well, I'm doing research now, but I'm really thinking about leadership later. So that's when you're like, well, do I get a coach or a sponsor to think about, well, I'm really interested in leadership. How can I go to a leadership conference or get some experience in that area? And so I think diversifying your deck is really important. Um, and then also keep in mind that, um, you know, uh, there are rules of etiquette around mentoring and being a good mentee. And so, um, you know, I have people who come 
and say, will you be my mentor? And I'm like, okay, yeah, this sounds great. And then they fall off the grid and they never talk with me again. And then they say, well, you're so busy and I feel bad emailing you. And I'm like, you know what? I signed up and I'm on the docket for you. And of all the emails I get, I want to hear from you. And so, um, so one of the things to keep in mind is that you get what you put in, you know? And so if you're a mentee, you really want to help that you're aligned with your mentor and figure out how is it you can get the best advice from your mentor and do collaborative work together so that you're not, um, you're not really thinking about this as like, you know, oh, I, I, I can't talk to my mentor. They're never around. Um, so I will say there's a wonderful set of papers on mentor and mentee malpractice that actually um, Sanjay Saint and Vineet Chopra have authored. And, um, and they're humorous and they uh, really get at the key problem, which is a communication problem. How do you make sure you're aligned and set expectations around mentoring? And, um, and that's just and it's even more important with gender issues because, um, you know, perhaps you have a male mentor. It's not uncommon to have a male mentor as a female mentee. And maybe you need somebody else on your team to address those work life balance issues because that's not going to come from your mentor. So that's going to be a coach who's maybe your section chief or another prominent woman uh, a dean in the medical school, somebody else who can actually advise you on these issues. How do you advocate for your salary? So that's where I think coaching really comes in, where you don't necessarily need to need to need them at all times, but you need them at those pivotal transition points to be like, how can I get to from point A to point B? I'm so impressed. I feel like I have now a, a bigger crush on Vinny, and now I'm just like. <laughs> slightly more fangirling we're we i think everybody on this call is going to be a lot more successful now here if we are put if we put this into practice (laughs) and our listeners too yeah wonderful i'd love to hear that all right thank you so much Vinny. bye bye so with that please let us know what your thoughts are on this episode we'd love to hear your feedback We have many more topics we'd like to delve into from sexual harassment to discussing gender disparity by other identities, including race, ethnicity, and LGBTQ plus identity, and balancing our personal lives and careers as inequity is not only at work. So tell us what you're interested in. We look forward to hearing from you. So this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes. <laughs> that was delayed. Sorry. You can, find, you can find show notes with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com uh, slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list with a PDF PDF copy of our expertly done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So subscribe, rate, review the show on iTunes or send us an email at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Shreya Trivedi. I've been Dr. Leah Witt. And this has been Matt Watto. Good night. Thanks to all of our producers for this episode, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, Hannah Abrams, Nora Toronto, Molly Hubline, Beth Garbatelli, and to our whole Curbsiders team who helps keep the show running. Hannah R. Abrams runs our Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. I hope I said those last names correctly. I think they were close enough. <laughs>